Welcome to the Wise of Texas podcast. Wise of Texas is a nonpartisan nonprofit empowering and educating Texas South Asians to be informed voters and partake in civic engagement. You can visit our website, wiseuptx.org, and find us on all social media platforms. This is Poonam Kaji, Wise of Texas board member, and today's host. I want to remind you of a couple of things. Um, October 11th is a deadline to register to vote to participate in the midterms. If you're already registered, you're good to go. Um, But if you've moved, if you've changed your name, if you're new to Texas, um, if you've recently turned 18 or are turning 18, um, you may want to check your voter registration and make sure you're registered to vote. You also want to tell your friends and family who's the same. We've posted a ton of language-specific graphics on Wise of Texas social media pages, so please check those out. and then be prepared for the Masala midterms. Follow us so you can get ready for the midterm election. It's a really important election. So today's episode is actually a bonus episode. And I'm just going to do a brief intro. And then I'm going to replay an episode from 2019. Because it touches on something that is um, really breaking news. And... Uh, that is related to the release of Anand Syed. So back in 2019, Wise of Texas founder and president Azra Siddiqui interviewed Anand Syed's criminal justice advocate, Rabia Chowdhury. Rabia took Anand's story to the Serial podcast and went viral and it showed the public the failures of the criminal justice system in his case. I think many people who heard the podcast or otherwise heard Anand Syed's story could see the many ways that the evidence wasn't really adding up against him. Now, after 23 years in prison for murder, Anand's conviction has been vacated and he has been released from prison. So this is going to be a really interesting episode where you can go back in time to 2019 and hear what Rabia Chowdhury was saying about Anand's case and um, hear about this long fight for justice. I'm going to turn to that very soon, but before I do, just a really quick update on what's happened. Um, On September 19, Anand Sayed was released from prison after 23 years when a judge vacated his conviction. And in this instance, the prosecutors, the same people technically who would uh, try the case against Anand Sayed, that's the prosecution, are the ones that asked to vacate the conviction. So um, essentially, Anand's attorneys have been you know, calling for this for many, many years, but um, they relied on a relatively new law called the Juvenile Restoration Act, which said people who were tried and convicted as juveniles and got long um, criminal sentences could ask the prosecutor's office to take a look and ask a judge to um, shorten their sentence. This is the kind of criminal justice reform, um, new, relatively new law. And the attorneys uh, asked for that. So the prosecutor was reviewing the case to see whether um, what kind of information could be presented uh, in light of the, the law. And in, in doing that, the prosecutor found some major problems with the case. One of the biggest problems was that there were notes in the investigative file. These were handwritten notes that talked about two potential other suspects. And um, these notes were not turned over to the defense. And in fact, 
Under the law, the prosecution is required to turn over evidence to the defense as part of the case. This is called exculpatory evidence, and it's supposed to be provided to the defense. Um, in this case, it was not, and that is called a Brady violation based on a, a Supreme Court case. So um, in light of this and some other uh, information that um, that the prosecutor found, including talk, you know, reviewing the evidence on cell phone towers and calling in other experts to kind of look at the evidence again, um, in light of everything that was found, the prosecutor said, hey, look, we really need to have this conviction vacated. So um, that is what happened. And I think a lot of people probably are, are um, celebrating this in, in part uh, because it's just one of those criminal justice wins. But it's also just very saddening to know that it took 20, 23 years um, to get here. And we thought it'd be really interesting to go back and hear this interview with Rabia, hear about um, how long it took for them to fight for this and um, the type of persistence that it takes to be an activist like her. So I will turn it now to that conversation. Um, and you can hear Ezra interviewing Rabia Chowdhury. Let's now listen to what Rabia Chaudhry has to say. Joining us today is Rabia Chaudhry. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, um, we heard so much about the Adnan Syed case from the Serial Podcast. I was an avid listener, and then afterwards you came out with a New York Times bestseller. Do you mind giving, for those of my listeners who haven't kept up um, with Adnan's case, just an overview of where his case, you know, where it started, how it began, how it's, you know, what's been happening, and the latest update? So I'll start with kind of where it all began, which is in 1999 in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, Adnan Sayed it was uh, a 17-year-old high school senior at the time okay. at Woodlawn High School, and the classmate of his, a young girl by the name of Heyman Lee, disappeared one day after school. And about uh, a month later, her body was found. Um, she had been strangled, and her body had been dumped in a local park. Uh, and it was a horrific crime. And her and Adnan had dated for about six months the prior year. And so very early on in the investigation, I knew Adnan since he was 13 years old. Um, I have a younger brother named Saad, and Adnan and Saad were best friends since they were 13, 14. So I used to see Adnan all the time. And uh, I was in law school at the time, and um, I wasn't a lawyer, but I was one of the very few like South Asians that I knew in law school in the 90s. And so I was just horrified um, because about a month after they found her body, they arrested Adnan for the crime. Okay. And the theory of the theory of the crime was that she broke up with him, and he was the angry Muslim man who had to honor kill his partner. Um, now she had a current boyfriend at the time. They did not investigate him. There were lots of leads they didn't look at. Adnan had a completely clear record. You know, great kid. Everybody in the community loved him. He was a very gentle, very sweet boy. Um, he had never been in trouble, and just you know, honor roll student and all those things wanted to go to medical school, and it destroyed his life. He was convicted 
brought up his, his Pakistani background. He was born and raised in America, but they brought uh-huh. up his Pakistani background and his religion 300, ton, 300 times at the trial. And uh, this was before 9-11, so people think there was no, you know, Islamophobia before them, but there was. Yeah. And he was, convic- he was convicted and he was sentenced to life plus 30 years as a juvenile, which is also now the Supreme Court says un- unconstitutional. Right. Um, so, you know, for, now, because I was in law school at the time, I, I obviously couldn't represent him and I wouldn't. He, he needed a really good lawyer. Um, the community rallied, we raised money, got him a lawyer. Um, for lots of reasons, the lawyer failed him. Um, she was very sick, and about a year later, she died, and she even was disbarred. Um, so she she really failed him. Um, and I, for the, for, the, for the last 20 years, have been working with the family to help him try to win an appeal and get a new trial. Right. And we just, we weren't, we weren't nothing was happening. We kept losing every appeal. And finally, I said, you know, I'm going to go to a journalist. Uh, and I went, and I found this journalist named Sarah Koenig, she was a radio producer, a, a producer podcast at This American Life, or, or I'm sorry, produced radio shows, and she did, she investigated for about 10 months, and then she came back to me and said, we're going to turn this one into a podcast, and that podcast became Serial, which was the first season of Serial right. in 2015, I think it was, or was it 14, but it just blew up. It was, the, it, it still is the biggest podcast in history. That led to me, along with Adnan, who's still in prison, obviously, um, he is now, 38, um, writing this book together, it became a New York Times bestseller, and uh, that has that was an option to, to make a documentary series, which will begin airing on HBO on March 10th. Um, now, that's been all the publicity, which has been very important for the case itself, because we won the last two appeals, and his conviction was overturned two times. Okay. But every time it, yeah, every time it gets overturned, the state appeals it, and so we have to keep fighting. So we're, we're, we're in the last appeal, basically. This is, we're just waiting for the court to make a decision in the final appeal. And in summer, we, we think we'll win it for the third time, too. And um, I really do believe he'll come home this year. So essentially, you guys are waiting for a new trial. Am I correct? We are waiting for the court to decide uh, whether he wins this appeal. If he wins this appeal, the state can decide. Either they, they have to give him a trial or they have to let him go. That's the only option. Oh, okay. But it's been pending for about two years, right? Like they haven't made a decision? No, no. Um, this latest appeal has been, the hearing was just in November. It was okay. last summer. So it's been in some stage of appeal at different courts for the last three years. Four years. I mean, three years, really. I mean, but we won the last two appeals, and then we won an appeal last summer, and the state appealed it again, and that's where we are now. Oh, wow. So, you know, I'm going to uh, talk about, you know, the book that you had written and you stated that Anand's trial really impacted you and you know I think our community doesn't really talk about criminal justice reform that much as a, a policy that we really care about right I don't think we see it as something that really impacts our community um, but I still think we should care about it just as a whole as a humanistic situation because I do think our criminal justice system is broken there's so many issues but you know I want to ask you when you say that Adnan's case in particular impacted you, like, do you think the injustices he faced is an isolated incident, or do you think these cases are prevailing in other cases? So in other words, do you think there's an overall failure in the criminal justice system today? Yeah, Adnan's case um, is not uncommon. Uh, you know, across the board, the reason there's an, and there has always been a need for criminal justice reform is because of the racial dynamics in this country. 
you know, what, be, what was slavery became Jim Crow, became the criminal justice system and the school to prison pipeline. When you look at sentencing issues, when you look at incarceration rates, they are so much higher. I mean, there are communities that are criminalized, communities of color that are criminalized for behaviors that white communities are not criminalized for. I'll give you an example. You go to downtown Baltimore, like in, in, where I live in the suburbs, you know, I'm surrounded by people who are mostly affluent. I can hang out outside. I can hang out all day. I can't do that downtown in a poor-colored community because it's called loitering, and I'll get arrested for it. So when you criminalize the behavior of certain communities, what you do is you put them behind bars, right? You make sure they cannot make bail. You destroy their families. They lose their jobs. They lose their houses. This is a systemic issue. The, what a non-faced uh, also is very, very typical of wrongful conviction cases. And wrongful right. conviction cases, there are hundreds and thousands of people, maybe more, in our prisons that don't belong there because they were wrongfully convicted. And his case is so, so typical. It has all the hallmarks of a wrongful conviction. So it's not an isolated incident. It was a big shock to our community because Muslims like, we don't do this. The truth is that just like for years, when I practiced immigration law, and for years I would try to get Muslim community involved in immigration reform, and they're like, well, that's not our problem. That's like the Latino problem. Right. Are you crazy? crazy? And, And you know what? This administration has shown us how it's our problem. Uh, it's always been our problem, and so is criminal justice, because if you look at even post-9-11 terrorism cases, same thing, same thing. The bias is held against communities of color. It's our problem. Right, and, um, you know, and then you further stated in your book that, you know, Islamophobia played a huge role in the prosecution's case, and, and you stated this a little bit earlier. Um, so do you mind giving us a, a few examples of how, you know, how the prosecution prosecution used his religion and his ethnic background against him and do you feel other cultural traditions have a negative impact on the majority of criminal cases? Yeah, I'll give you a couple examples. At Adnan's bail hearing, um, again, he's 17 years old, has no criminal history. The entire community, you know, backed him and what happened was at the bail hearing, there were like hundreds of people from the community there, businessmen, doctors, imams, and 12 people put up their house for collateral. 12 people, that never happens. Like, yeah. in, most cases, in most cases for bail hearing, nobody shows up. And so many people were backing him and vouching for him. But you know what the prosecutor said? The prosecutor said that the reason this guy is a flight risk is because this whole community backs him. Because in their community, in their religion, this is not something that is, like, that is seen as a bad thing, like killing, Killing your female partner, domestic violence, or honor killings, like this is like part of their culture. She actually said that there is a pattern of Pakistani males in America who kill their partners and flee, and then we cannot extradite them. She actually said that in court. Wow. I was so blatantly racist, right? So so racist. And you know, we were like, well, here's his passport. He he had been to Pakistan once when he was 10. And the community was shocked because, like I said, upstanding citizens putting up their houses. And what she's saying is that this whole community is complicit. This whole community. And the police's theory of the case was not only that it not killed her, but that people and there were people in the community who knew it and helped cover it up. Wow. It's so crazy to think that. I mean, and we still see it current day, like you see all these like articles coming out of just how blatantly racist people are. Like 
the yeah. stuff that they can say, especially at the fact that this can happen like in court, in public, you know, like a lot of stuff you hear is right. kind of like behind the scenes, but this is something right. that's being, being argued like in front yeah. of hundreds of people that were there, right? Yeah. And it's on the record. Better. There's a 12-page memo that the prosecution had in their file that was written by a cultural consultant. It was a woman who makes it, who has made it her life's work. You know, one of those cottage industry Islamophobes to, like, write about Muslims and Muslim culture. So they had a 12-page memo that she wrote for the case where she said, basically, like, you know, Islam is a religion of violence against women. That one time, Adnan gave his ex-girlfriend a scarf as a gift, and she said, when a, when a Muslim man gives a woman a scarf, it means he owns her. What? It was uh, egregious, exactly. And that's what I said when I read it. I was like, what? <laughs> what are you saying? And, and this was, was this handed to the jury? Uh, this was not handed to the jury, but it was, the prosecution had it, and they built their case on it. This was part of the actual case file. This is part of official records. Wow. So... I mean, as egregious as this is, what, I mean, how do you think the justice system can overcome hurdles like this? Obviously, this type of stuff happens to other communities of color. Like, I'm sure it happens to African-American community, the, his, the Latino community. Like, I mean, what is it that can be done about this? Well, look, I mean, you know, the remedy for these issues is often also going to be found in court, just like with the Muslim ban. You have to litigate against it. You know, the, the, one of the best, things that could have been done in this case, and it wasn't done, unfortunately, was to raise constitutional challenges. It, it is unconstitutional to hold somebody's religion against them. Right. Um, and so raising constitutional challenges, because then that sets precedent to make sure courts don't do it again. But another very important thing to do is to get some good training. Um, you know, I, I have done training for lawyers and, and, and bar associations on bias in the legal system and the criminal system, and how... At every step of the way, whether it's a prosecutor who decides, I'm going to charge this person with this many counts, I'm going to ask for this sentence, but just show them the statistics and ask, how do you account for this? How do you account for a white man going to prison for half the time that a black man's going to prison for the same crime? Like, you know, like really hold your, these people accountable um, and, and, and keep the data going. Data is important, but training is important. I mean, the thing is, the, the, the upside of systemic problems is that you can then have systemic fixes. Right. So, what can we as, like, the Desi community do about this whole criminal justice system? Like, we know that there's injustices happening. Um, is there anything that we can do as a community to ensure that these types of injustices don't keep occurring? You know, first of all, I think it's imperative for the community to think about these issues as a real serious issue. Whether or not you know a Muslim in prison, and by the way, in any given state, nearly 25% of the prison population identifies themselves as Muslim because many, many black uh, men who are incarcerated will convert in prison. There are huge Muslim populations inside the state prison system, number one. Number two, think about it from an Islamic perspective. How many times, like we know from our Muslim tradition, in the Quran does it talk about prisoners and, you know, how you treat prisoners and freeing prisoners and all that stuff? Like, Take it as seriously as we do, you know, like feeding the homeless and and building habitats for humanity and healthcare and all these other issues we're now getting into. Uh, to, and support the work of the professionals who've been doing it. We don't need to recreate the wheel. There are people who've been doing this work for decades. Uh -huh. Support them. Support them. Vote in the right people in office. The most powerful person in the system is the district attorney. And um, in many jurisdictions, the same person 
will have held that position forever. They keep running, and nobody's running against them. You know, get the right people in that position. It makes all the difference. You just have to, you just have to find out who's doing the work locally and support them. Yeah, so uh, I want to kind of hone in. You're talking about district attorneys. Um, do you mind giving just a quick overview of how much power they hold in terms of these okay. types of cases? Yeah, they, they hold all the power. You want criminal justice reform? Forget top-down. Forget legislation. Forget anything. Get the right person in power. The district attorney decides, but a police officer can arrest somebody. Uh-huh. The, DA deci- the, the district attorney decides whether they're actually going to prosecute that person, whether they're going to drop the charges, and if they prosecute them, what are they going to charge them with? You know, I'll give you an example um, of how um, one district attorney can make a difference. Philadelphia mm-hmm. is, a his- is a historically corrupt criminal justice system. I mean decades and decades of corruption. So many wrongful convictions, so much police brutality. Last year, or year, no, two years ago, a man named Larry Krasner ran for district attorney. He was not a prosecutor. He was a criminal defense attorney who actually had sued the Philadelphia Police Department 75 times in his career. Wow. And it, for the first time, you had somebody from outside the system who had experienced it on the other side through his clients run for district attorney, and he won. So he goes in, you know what he did? He fired half the prosecutors in there that he knew were dirty prosecutors. He made a list of police officers and he said, these are corrupt police officers. I will, they will never be allowed to testify in one of our cases. Wow. He, he said, I will never ever prosecute a marijuana offense. Mm-hmm. He said, no more cash bail. I mean, in six months, he turned the system upside down. One person. So that's how much power a DA has. And he said, he told the prosecutors that were left in his office, he said, if you are asking for a 10-year sentence for a defendant, you have to justify to me how much money we're going to spend incarcerating. You have to show me it's going to cost this much money. We could hire this many teachers for the city with that money. Why this person, like, you can't just say, I want the maximum sentence for everybody. You have to justify it. So he's pretty amazing. That is. And um, I know, like, in Texas, like, Criminal justice reform is is coming up as a, as a bit of a topic on the Texas legislature. Like, there's talks about decriminalizing marijuana, and I believe like Dallas has already taken the steps to to not start arresting, but to start issuing fines instead of arresting right. people. And so, um, and I think that's like the Dallas, you know, the DA is implementing these types of um, yeah. regulations. And so, I think that's why I don't think you know. I think you know this past election season, and I'm talking from a Texas perspective, like. Everyone focused on the Beto race, like on the Senate race, but our community needs to realize like those down ballot races, every single one of them is so vital and so important, even though you don't think it is, you know? Oh, it's very important. There's a lot of power there, yeah. Right. So um, I think, you know, the work that you've done, you've been such an inspiration, you know, being Adnan Syed's biggest supporter, you're such a social justice fighter. And, you know, I want to ask you... You know, you said it's been 20 years. What has kept you motivated to continue this fight? Like, you've made other podcasts talking about criminal justice issues. Like, I mean, seriously, like, how do you do it? <laughs> look, I mean, when you look at kind of how wrongfully convicted people are exonerated, take any case, it's almost always one person who just won't let go. It almost always takes 18, 20, 25, 30 years sometimes. But it requires one person on the outside who's like, I'm not going to walk away. Um, and the truth is, once you know a person, you know a human being, 
Like, I know it's not. I know this case. I can't just be like, well, I tried. I'm sorry. You're just going to have to die there. Like, that's what I'm going to tell him, that you're just going to have to die there if I stop fighting for you. Mm-hmm. And there's no way I can do it. I can't do that. I can't do it to his family, and I don't, and I also know he doesn't belong there. Um, right. So for me, you know, I, I'm fueled by a lot of anger at the system, by just the injustice of them destroying his life, his family's life, and even the fact that the victim didn't get justice. Her killer is out there. Her killer has lived free for 20 years. And so, um, you know, but, but it just, it requires you to, if you know, if you know these people, and we don't, people think of people in prison like animals. Right. They're human beings, and there's so many wonderful, good people, and even people who went in who are terrible, they have often become wonderful people. Um, you can't walk away from them then. Um, with your latest, you know, situation in, in bringing Adnan Syed's case, you know, into light, You've partnered with Amy Bird, yeah. Yeah, so I know it comes out like um, Sunday, March 10th, and um, I'm really excited to, to watch it. Do you mind giving us, you know, a broad overview without giving away too much about what the documentary is going to be about? Yeah, so you know, when my book was going to be option, when my book was going to be published and it was announced that it was coming out, uh, I was immediately contacted by Jemima Khan, and I'm sure many of your listeners know who Jemima Khan is. She's the former wife of the Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, uh-huh. um, and she she produces amazing documentaries. And she said, you know what, I want to make, I want to option your book and make this documentary because I believe he's innocent, and I think something really terrible has gone on here. So she, her production house hired Amy Berg, and Amy, Amy Berg is Oscar nominated, and she has done incredible work on other cases. Um, so for the last three and a half years, I've been working with Amy and her team. You know, just helping to the extent that I can, but they did the work independently. I didn't interfere um, to investigate the case, to interview witnesses who haven't spoken before, to really figure out what the truth is and whether or not he belongs in prison. Um, so it's a four-part series. Okay. It will air every Sunday night on HBO um, at 9 p.m. And um, it starts March 10th. And uh, I think it's going to be the final, this is the final blow to the state's case to prove his innocence. Um, I'm so excited for it. Um, I think, do you think that what the documentary shows is going to go beyond, you know, the evidence that was presented in the serial podcast and, 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 you know, even your book went into more detail as well. Yeah. There's very, I mean, to be honest, serial was a great story, but there were no lawyers involved. There's there's very little evidence presented in serial. All they do is examine what the state that happened. My book and our my podcast undisclosed looks at a lot of evidence, but what Amy and her team did was go way well, well beyond it, well beyond it. So uh, there's stuff in there that I, I even the first time I saw, I didn't know, I didn't know about. There's new evidence that I didn't know existed. So oh really? It, yeah, it totally. And I have I seen the first three episodes when they were done. Um, again, I wasn't involved in producing them. She was very unbiased. She had her own investigative team. I still haven't seen the fourth episode, but um, certainly she brings new evidence to light that, that is not covered anywhere. Okay, well, wow, that's really good to know. I think um, for many of my listeners who have you know, avidly been following Adnan's case, um, we're really looking forward to this documentary. Um, I want to say thank you so much for joining us on this interview and um, you know, wishing you all the best. In Thank your you. other, um, I know you're fighting other criminal justice issues on your other podcast or trying to talk about the exoneration of other 
um, people who yeah. you feel have been wrongfully convicted. Do you mind telling my listeners what's your other podcasts that are out there? Hope you enjoyed that um, mem- Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview back from 2019 that Ezra was able to do with Rabia Chaudhry. Truly, um, a very inspiring person, an activist. Um, she continues to do really important work, so um, you could follow her or go to her website um, to learn more about her work in this space. Um, to help people who have been wrongly convicted of crimes. In this case, uh, Anand Sayed was convicted for murdering his ex-girlfriend, Heyman Lee. Um, in all these years, that information about the suspects um, that should have been turned over, that should have been properly investigated, has been sitting around stale. And that's really not fair to Heyman Lee's family either. And so in these scenarios, there are so many victims, um, both Anand Sayed and his family and Heyman Lee and her family, um, as justice was really denied because it's been so far delayed. If you care about these issues, about bias in the criminal justice system, about investigators and the prosecutor's office complying with the law and the Constitution, if you care about making sure that innocent people don't end up in jail, please make sure you get out and vote. We can influence this with our vote, and don't forget it. So that concludes our uh, episode for today, this bonus episode. Um, We hope you continue to subscribe and share our podcast. uh, And remember, you can find it on all podcast platforms. Um, We'll have episodes with candidates coming up that are going to be on the ballot for the Masala midterm, and um, we appreciate you listening. Get educated, get wiser, and start giving a hoot with Wise of Texas.